So last week, we, we looked at the tabernacle, right? And we looked at the tabernacle, and it was designed to be a piece of holy ground in the midst of a world that has totally lost its way. It was a place where God was meeting with his people in the midst of the tabernacle, in the midst of his people, and it was a holy ground. And you'll even notice in here that the priests themselves, there were no instructions for shoes, right? For the place that they were standing is holy ground. Moses was told before, take off your shoes. The place that you are standing is holy ground. So the tabernacle was a, a holy place in the midst of a, a world that is lost and broken, in the midst of a world that has lost its way. It was designed to be this dynamic, beautiful, powerful symbol, a worship center where the people of Israel could fellowship with their holy God. It was a place of order in the midst of chaos. Order in the midst of chaos. A place of peace in the midst of a world that is absolutely broken by the effects of sin. So if you weren't with us last week, I, I linked this idea of, of the sanctuary in the Old Testament to what it means for us to be the church in this 21st century here in America. I gave you some seven pastoral thoughts that probably I should put out on Facebook or posted in the city about what it means to be these people who are sanctuary, God's peace in the midst of this world that is broken. And it helped me in the, this time to frame my thinking and to settle my heart as, as all these things have been happening in Charleston, South Carolina, in the midst of the Supreme Court's decision. It helped me settle my heart knowing that God is ultimately in control. Nothing has changed. God is still reigning. But these thoughts also help me frame my thinking and settle my heart more so in a way that it helped me have a new and perhaps a, a more clear sense of our mission in this world. Missio Dei Church, we, we are a holy place. Wherever we go and when we gather, we are holy places in the midst of a world that has lost its way. And honestly, I think that's what worship does for us, doesn't it? It satisfies something deep within us. It, and this is especially true in, in our world as, we, as it starts to show all of its cards of brokenness. In other words, I needed to worship last week to settle my heart, to give me a clear vision as to where I'm going and who I am in this lost and broken world. But the reality is I need to worship this week as well. It's not just in the midst of when it seems to all just hit the fan and go crazy. I need it day in and day out, week by week. Worship was so important to God that he went to crazy lengths to describe and to identify the colors and the fabrics and the materials and the dimensions that were to be used in the construction of his tabernacle. We kind of read this and go, Okay, we got a blueprint. Got it. Move on. But worship was so critical to God that he went to the nth degree to describe absolutely everything. These are the dimensions. Don't make it any bigger. Don't make it any smaller. Don't change the colors on me. This is what I want. 
God's instructions were so specific to God because worship is that critical for you and for me. That God says, listen, I'm going to describe. I'm going to give you dimensions. And the reality is that everybody worships. Everybody worships. Did you know that a couple weeks ago was the beginning of one of the most important work, uh, months of worship for 1.5 billion people around the world? On Wednesday, June 17, the Muslim month of Ramadan began and lasts until July 7. Islam means Submission And the month of Ramadan is the expression of their submission to Allah through their fasting from sunrise to sunset, from eating, from, they were fasting from all eating and all drinking. Fasting is one of the five pillars of the Muslim faith that they believe will gain them favor on judgment day before their God. In other words, it is what must be done in order to be right with God. Really spiritual Muslims during the month of Ramadan will even refuse to swallow their own saliva during the day because they consider it intake. Could you imagine your fear of God, your worship of Allah is so great that you for fasting, you refuse to even swallow, but you're constantly spitting it out. <clears throat> Muslims take this month very seriously because their eternal destinies depend on it. I share this with you. One, because we need to be praying. We need to be praying for our culture, for our, our states, our, our nation, where more and more Muslim men and women and children will become our neighbors, our co-workers. And these are people far from God, in need of the good news of Jesus Christ. But I also tell you this to remind you that human beings were created for worship. You've been created to worship. Everyone worships. And that worship is based upon one's view of sin, atonement, forgiveness, and judgment. Worship is based on your understanding of what is required as you approach God. So Exodus 28 and 29 shifts the focus from the, the facility of worship to the priests who will serve the people in worship. These two chapters are, are more about, it's more than just about the priests and, and, and the clothing that they're wearing. It's kind of like the temple, you know, I didn't want, or the, the tabernacle. I didn't want to go into all the details about the hangings and all this kind of stuff going on in there. I didn't want you to think just about that, the details. I want to, you to get to the point to say, what is the dynamic symbol? What is really going on here? What is God trying to communicate to us in a building? And what is God trying to communicate to us now in these two chapters about these detailed instructions about clothing and their consecration and these sacrifices? There's two key concepts that inform the worship of a holy God in the Bible. 
And that's the idea, number one, of mediation. And number two, of consecration. Mediation and consecration. To be a mediator means to be that someone is being reconciled. One, one party needs to be reconciled with the other. And there's somebody who goes in between the two parties that are totally separated. From a biblical perspective, sinful people need a mediator between them and a holy and awesome God. Moses acted as the mediator of God's law in Exodus 19 and 20. He was the one that went between the people and God. The children of Israel stood back from the mountain. They said, you go, you go for us. That mountain is shaking. There's lightning. There's thunder. It is a scary place. He's a holy God. And you go for us. And so Moses mediated the law. The people stood back, and Moses was the only one who dared draw near. But we also, so we have this idea of mediator, but we also have this idea of being consecrated. It's kind of a foreign kind of word, one that we don't really talk about much unless you're in church circles. But it's an important word because it means to be set apart and to be, to be uh, dedicated as sacred. It means to be made clean or to cleanse. And here again, we have heard this previously in another account in Exodus. Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. If God was going to come near his people, if he was going to come anywhere close to his people, the people needed to be consecrated. Mediation and consecration are vital aspects of our worship, vital aspects in, in the Bible. And for one reason, God is holy. Both concepts are intended to emphasize that, that approaching God is absolutely serious and, and potentially even dangerous. The people saw that on Mount Sinai and, and the tabernacle was to, what they saw was intended to communicate these regular ideas that God is holy and we dare not get near unless we are consecrated and through a mediator. You can't just waltz into God's presence and you cannot just come as you normally are. You need a mediator. And everyone needs to be consecrated. So this is fundamental to what Christianity, the gospel, is all about. And we need, and we see it clearly expressed in these instructions regarding the priests. So let's first talk about this, the mediatorial role that is found in chapter 28. God gives some pretty clear instructions about the dress code, right? I'm breaking all dress code this morning. Every pastor that stands in the pulpit today is breaking the dress code. Whether they are wearing the full Genevan gown and wearing the collar, whatever they are wearing, they're breaking the dress code according to chapter 28. But what we have to get beyond the dress code is what was, is it trying to communicate? These priests, 
Their role is to mediate or to represent the people before God. Therefore, the specific details about the, what the priests were to wear is not just about appropriate clothing. And I grew up in a culture where there's appropriate clothing for church. I don't know how many of you had the same thing. This is what you wear to church. But it goes beyond that. But about, you know, we had on Sunday or Saturday night, we had to buff our shoes to a high sheen where our fingers were black from the, um, the kiwi uh, wax for our shoes. We had to have it at a high sheen. You could see yourself in it. You're missing the point there. It's not what this is really about. But what we can see here about these priests was that the message with their clothing was that these garments were for glory and for beauty. Glory and for beauty. And this can be confirmed in what we see in verse 2. And the theme shall be repeated again in chapter 31. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Sometimes, here's my little sidebar, sometimes we think about the only way that there's really any kind of spiritual empowerment or gifting is through word-based word ministry. And there's a danger to elevate a pastor above everybody else because it's word-based ministry. It's coming, I'm preaching, and that's, that's where the real power is. That's where the real life-giving force is coming from, where there is a very true element there. But what we find here is that God also fills people with a spirit of skill, a spirit of skill in order to make these garments for these priests. These people were uniquely gifted by God. For the important task of making stuff for worship. So if you are an artist, you, if you, God has gifted you and talented you in such a way that he has given you skill to make beautiful things, use those things for worship. Could you imagine what it can be? Have you ever walked into a sanctuary where your eyes are immediately brought up and you're just caught in awe by the handiwork that is done there. I've walked into St. Peter's in Rome and I was caught up in the beauty and the power and the majesty of this amazing, beautiful building. What it might represent is one thing, but this was... They were gifted with the skill of creating something beautiful to communicate something powerful. God has given us skills to be used. I digress. Back on to topic. There were six garments that were created here, right? So you expect me to go through all six, right? The answer is no. We're only going to stick with four, but they're, they're, it's important stuff. The first four are the most important and have, for me, the most significant. They're the most significant in meeting. Meaning the breastplate, the ephod, the robe, the turban. Then you got the coat and the sash. But they all point to the role of a mediator. First, the ephod. 
Why don't you throw that up for me, first one, okay? Just so that you kind of got a visual of what I'm talking about here. The first garment was this priestly ephod, which was a sleeveless vest-like garment comprised of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, along with fine, fine linen. And it was held tight with a belt made of the same materials. You see it up there, right? It's kind of this really pretty-looking thing. And the color scheme and the quality of the fabric was coordinated with the materials that were found where? In the tabernacle, right? These exact same materials were repeated over and over and over in the previous two chapters. So whatever was going on there in the tabernacle is also trying to be communicated here on this man of God, this priest who is mediating, who is consecrated, who is set apart. The most important element of this ephod was the placement of the two onyx stones on each shoulder. Each stone was engraved with, with the six names of the sons of Israel on one side, six names of the sons of Israel on the other side, in their birth order. Why, why is this so important? Because, verse 12, Aaron shall bear their names, how? Before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. These stones were placed on the shoulders of Aaron. They were designed to, to symbolize that when a priest enters into the very presence of God, he does so for himself and the people that he represents. The priest's primary role was to bear the names before the Lord. He goes before God with the names of the people that he represents, himself being one of these tribes. And he goes into God's presence saying, I, I carry these people with me as I enter into his presence. Then you have the breast piece. Over the, over the ephod was a, a, a breast piece of judgment, which was a fabric pouch containing the urim and the thummimim. Then these stones were held in a little pouch kind of underneath, and it, there's a little bit of a mystery as to how they really worked and why, you know, why, why are they hidden and what, 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 what power do they really have? But we do know that they were one of the ways that God revealed his will to his people in the Old Testament. One of the stones means light. One of the stones means dark. And these stones were used in a similar fashion as casting lots to, in order to discern God's will. That's why the NIV, the New International Version, translates verse 15 as a breastpiece for making decisions. Not judgment like, you know, put the finger down on the man, but it's for making decisions. And embedded into this fabric of this breastpiece was 12 stones, four rows of three. And each of these stones represented one of the tribes of Israel. In, in this way, the breastpiece was similar to the ephod, but it seemed to carry even more of an individual tribe focus. The priest bore all the names on his shoulders, but he bore the individual names on his heart. Name by name, tribe by tribe, on his heart. Verses 29 and 30 just give us a, a great summary of the role of the breastpiece. 
when, when, when he goes into the holy place, he is to bring them, the, the names of the sons of Israel, into regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This also kind of talks about the role and responsibility of, a, of your local pastor. And that's one of the reasons why we have lists like this where your name is found. And we keep track of attendance, not so that we, you know, catch up on your back tithes or your past offerings that you missed or anything like that, but for the sake of constantly bringing your name before the Lord. You've been entrusted to us. And we want to care for you. So much like these priests, especially Aaron, he has the responsibility of bearing the names before the Lord regularly. So we see this role of mediator, a person representing the people of Israel before the Lord. But we also see the role of mediator involves helping the people of God discern God's will, right? In other words, the priest is a mediatorial conduit. He's a conduit between God and the people. He represents the people to God and God to the people. That's why it is critical that you have somebody who is authorized to stand before you week in and week out to preach the word of God, to bear the word of God to you. Here it is. We want you to know him so that you may discern his will, his good and perfect will. Moving on to the robe. Under the breastpiece was of uh, the breastpiece and the ephod was just a robe. It was blue in color and it's probably the most prominent feature. Prominent feature what was what was on its hem, on the very bottom. Verses 33 and 34 tell us that the garment was hemmed with an alternating pattern of decorative pomegranates and bells. It may have been a way of treating the entrance into the tabernacle with the respect as if ringing a doorbell before you come into somebody's home. Just saying, I'm coming before the Lord. But there's also a kind of a scary thing as you, you hear the going in and the going out and all of a sudden there's silence. What happened to the high priest? But he's able to move in and out because he has been set apart. Offerings have been, been made for this man. And it could have been created to create a sound that the people outside of the tabernacle heard, connecting them to the activity of the priest, even when he was not entirely visible. It's a constant reminder that ministry is going on, even when we cannot see the high priest. And that should give us a great amount of encouragement today. Though we can't see Christ, our great high priest who knows our name, whoever pleads for me. Think about that. 
the comfort that we have because of that. We know that he is constantly in ministry for us. Then there's the turban. The head of the priest was to be covered with a turban and a special gold plate. It was to be engraved with the words, holy to the Lord. And this was much more than just decoration, a little extra bling. Verse 38 carries the significance of this, this symbolism. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be acceptable, accepted before the Lord. The gold plate symbolized Aaron's role as the people's atoning representative. I am going to the Lord for you. I'm bearing your name. Your names are on my heart. And I am set apart as holy to the Lord to represent you to a holy God. The people's sacrifices were mediated from them to God by virtue of this person whose head was on his head was inscribed holy to the Lord. The, the priest mediated forgiveness on their behalf. And as you can see, these priestly garments were not just merely ceremonial clothes. They were symbols of important and that represent an important and foundational role of a mediator in worship. The office of the priest and the design of the, these vestments, these clothings, were intended to communicate that he represents the people of God before a holy God. The people needed a mediator. You need a mediator. That's the point. You need a mediator. Chapter 29 highlights this, uh, the second fundamental aspect of Christianity and the gospel, and it's that idea of consecration. 29 verse 1 says, And this you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. The priests needed to be consecrated, to be set aside in their service in, in this tabernacle, this holy place. And the word consecrated means to be set apart, to, be, to me to be made holy. So implicit in the meaning of the word is the assumption that human beings in their natural and normal condition are not consecrated. We are not holy. We are not set apart. This is important and foundational to the right understanding of Christianity and the gospel. And we see it reflected here. The foundational question is, how can human beings draw near to God in worship? How can you and I draw near to this holy God in worship? Back in Exodus 19, we learned the important principle as to why God established boundaries around the mountain where he was going to be dwelling, right? Right? And I express the idea in this phrase, like, God likes you, but he is not like you. God likes you, but you are the problem. You are the problem. God is holy. Human beings are not. So how is someone made holy or consecrated so that God might be approached? There must be atonement. 
And you've been hearing this more and more and more. And this is, yes, this might be Christianese, but this is critical Christianese. You need to understand this. Something or someone must die in our place. Someone or something must die in our place. Death has always been the penalty and the effect of sin. Death. And after the first sin committed by Adam and Eve, God covered the shame of their sin and nakedness with the skin of animals. Something died to cover them. So there's three significant sacrifices. I'm going to try to move quickly. The first one, the big one, the sin offering. Aaron and his sons, and I want you to kind of notice a pattern that happens every time. They come up to the animal, and what do they do? Hands on the head, right? They're putting the hands on the head. So they, they gather at the entrance of the tabernacle. They get washed. It's kind of probably their awkward bathing that happens. Aaron's going, all right, wash me up. Because it doesn't say Aaron washed himself. Others washed him, and they were cleansed, and they, they, then they were dressed by other people. I got some space issues going on. What are you going to do? But there, there's, there's this, these people are also recognizing him in this office, and they are donning the clothes on him. So they're saying, you are the guy. You are the guy. And we're entrusting you to do this mediatorial work. So we are going to set you apart for this, this office of ministry before God. So then a, a bull. Don't think like this baby cute thing. This, this bull is brought out fighting and kicking. And Aaron and the sons, his sons were placed their head, hands on the head of the bull. And this was a symbolic identification. I am identifying with this animal. The bull was slaughtered before the Lord and its blood was poured out at the base of the altar and it, blood was also smeared on the horns of four corners of this altar and a small portion of the bull was born, burnt on the altar but the rest was taken outside of the camp and burned. Some of you should be making this connection. Who was taken outside of the camp Christ because why this is a sin offering we can see later that sometimes sin uh, sacrifices were uh, included eating or some of the roasted or boiled meat but not the sin offering the entire bowl was burnt it was totally consumed and it was a very costly sacrifice for the high cost of sin. And since it represents the sinful contamination, it was taken outside the tabernacle and outside the entire encampment. No one lived there. It is taken outside of the camp. So that's the first thing, representing sin, needing to be atoned for. Secondly, was the first ram offering. You notice there's two going on right here. Aaron and his sons again put their hands on it and it was sacrificed and its blood was thrown against the side of the altar. Unlike the sin offering, this sacrifice is to be 
entirely, entirely burned on the sacrificial altar. Everything was to be offered up to the Lord, every bit of it. And the smoke from this grilled ram meat was wafting in the air, and it was a symbol of this sacrifice being offered to God and God alone. No one ate it. No one touched it. It was being totally consumed. The second ram offering was designed to specifically focus on the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And the second ram was also received, received the hands of Aaron and his sons. After the lamb was slaughtered, this is kind of one of those interesting kind of things going on. Blood was applied. It was applied first to the right ears of Aaron and his sons, the thumbs of their right hands, and to the big toes of their right feet, and then to the side of the altar. In other words, totally consecrated from head to toe. Blood being applied head to toe. This was a symbolic consecration of the entire body. I wholly am going to be used completely for ministry. I don't know, I'm hearing something. Verse 21 is an important verse. It appears that Moses took some of the blood that was splattered against the altar. He mixed it with oil. He took this blood and then he sprinkled it on Aaron and his sons. And in doing so, Moses was applying the atoning sacrifice to Aaron and his sons personally. They were being anointed with atonement blood, and the effect was that he and his garments shall be holy. And his sons and his sons' garments with him. In verses 22 and 28, record. Uh, record what happened to the remaining portion of the ram. Did you notice what happened? What happened next is part of the lamb was completely burnt on the altar after placing the elements into the hands of Aaron and his sons. Then the breast meat, uh, part of the, the chest of this, this ram, and the thigh meat were presented to the Lord. But then these portions were cooked and consumed. They were to eat those things with which atonement was made. Three sacrifices. These three sacrifices were not just a one-time event. This consecration was a model for a long-standing sacrificial system. And verses 35 to 41 give instructions regarding the, the perpetuity the continuation, the, the constantness of these sacrifices. It goes on and on for seven days. Israel's life, their corporate life, was marked by continual bloody sacrifices. Constant. But the sacrifices didn't end. They, were, they are just the means to another end. They kept on going all through the, the life of Israel, but they were meant to point to another end. The tabernacle, the priests, and the sacrifice, 
sacrifices were designed to be conduits to lead to something even greater, far more powerful, and ultimately something final. God will meet with his people. He will dwell among them. He will be their God, but it will not and it cannot happen without sacrifice that leads to holiness and mediation, which leads to reconciliation, peace with God. Therefore, in order for a holy God to have a relationship with sinful human beings, something Someone must die for you. And it must be mediated by someone other than you. This is why fasting to earn God's favor is so tragic. And why Christianity is so fundamentally humbling. The loud and clear message from the tabernacle is... You are the problem, and you cannot fix it on your own. There is nothing you can do. In fact, you've got to keep on killing lambs. You've got to keep on killing doves. You've got to keep on doing these things. You've got to keep on doing all these things constantly, constantly, constantly. The religion of Islam, what is it? It is just a constant standing in fear of their holy God, hoping just hoping that enough good acts will balance out things so that I have favor before God. The constant theme of the Bible is that we need a mediator who is consecrated so that we can be brought near. Everything about this sacrificial system was meant to be a prelude a prelude for the, the sacrifice of Jesus. The book of Hebrew provides us with an amazing text that linked the life and the death of Jesus to this system. It shows us how Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice, which is good news. Hebrews 9, but when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing, anchoring, locking down an eternal redemption. Thank God for that, right? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator. He is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is your high priest and the sacrifice and it is an eternal promise. There is no more need for sacrifices. Don't miss this. Jesus 
is both the mediator and the offering. He merges the office of priest and the sacrifice that was to be offered. The sinless son of God became the sin offering so that we could be made holy. Thank God. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is grace. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. And it is grace that changes how we change our approach to our relationship with God. We change our approach for our worship, our, our relationship with one another. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, remember that, through the curtain, you have to, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, and our bodies washed clean with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, have, who, who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So not only do we have access to God, and that is an amazing gift, it changes the way we relate to one another. It tells us that we are to consider how do we stir up one another to love? How do we encourage each other? Don't neglect meeting together. This is a holy place in the midst of a world that has lost its way. And Jesus purchased your opportunity today to meet together, to worship, to enjoy him. We have access before the Lord. Brothers, sisters, where have you been? Do not neglect meeting together. This has been purchased with a price. Don't just show up. Come gladly. And this is the grace that leads to godliness, to gratitude, and to good works. It changes the basis for everything good, including fasting. Christians do not do good works in order to earn God's favor, right? There's nothing that we can do to self-atone. Our good works spring from a heart that are captured by the love and the grace that God has shown to us. Christians don't fast out of a desire for God's approval. They fast or do anything good out of a joyful love for God, for who he is and what he has done for us. Obedience is not what we must do. It is what we want to do. And this is why Christians sing and Muslims do not. 
Why would you sing if you were constantly out of fear of not doing enough to earn God's favor? There is absolutely no joy in that. If religion is based upon works, it leads to despair and exhaustion. But we sing out of joy, out of gratitude, out of hope, even in our sorrow. The Christian's hope is not in what we could do, but in what Jesus has done. It makes all the difference in the world. That makes all the difference in eternity. We need a mediator, and we need holiness. And we find both in Jesus Christ. Think of one song. Just, I'm going to just give you a verse. And the chorus. There's a song that has, it's an old-time hymn. And it says this, dark is a stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Take that with you today.